We're going to go to the Word of God this morning, and uh, just going to share with you guys uh, a scripture um, and a thought, a few thoughts that have been percolating in my mind. But before we jump into the Word, I was <coughs> doing some research and came across a situation that I felt, wow, Lord, that just applies so so richly to this text. And on June fifth, nineteen seventy six, in Idaho. There was a dam, an earthen dam called the Teton Dam that collapsed without warning. It sent millions of gallons of water surging into the Snake River Basin. And it was devastating. It caused a lot of destruction. It's estimated that it caused over $2 billion worth of destruction. When you add up all the claims and you add up all the damage... 11 people died as a result of that dam bursting, and 16,000 livestock perished in that event. And everybody was shocked. Everybody was just flabbergasted at how this could have happened. And the question that everybody was contemplating, how could it have happened so quickly? By 8-something, 7-something in the morning, it, you know, the first initial you know, inklings of it was seen by 11.30, gallons and gallons and gallons that far surpassed Niagara Fall was rushing out of that basin and hitting all of those communities around it. But did it happen suddenly? You know, everyone was asking, everyone was shocked, how could this have happened so quickly? But did it happen suddenly? And the answer is no. Because beneath the waterline, there was a hidden fault that had been gradually weakening and the entire dam was being compromised because of it. It started off small enough, just a tiny bit of erosion. And as it grew, by the time it was detected, it was way too late. The workers barely escaped with enough time to get out of there and keep their lives before they were swept away. No one saw the little flaw and no one got hurt by it as well. But then everyone saw the big collapse, and many were hurt as a result. <clears throat> Sin operates subtly much the same, does it not? Sin operates much in the same way. When the results are felt, we are too, at that juncture, tempted to ask the question, how could it have happened so suddenly? Turn to your neighbor and say, how? So sudden. That's the question that I'm tempted to ask when I look at this passage of Scripture. When I consider King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that is the question that jumps out of the page. How can this have happened? This is the man that was anointed by God, by the prophet of God, to be the next king. This is the man who refined his intimacy with God in the back country as he tended the sheep of his father's flocks. And he would meditate on God's word day and night. He would write and pen songs and poetry to the Lord and worship. This is the man who slayed, like we talked about last week, slayed a giant in the name of the Lord and conquered armies as God's representative. This is the man that did some incredible exploits. And like I told you last week, this was a man who succeeded amazingly. But yet here we find them in 2 Samuel chapter 11 failing spectacularly. And I love the fact that this scripture is in here, not because I get to see a person that is down in the midst of a mess, but I love the fact that it's there because God is not afraid to show us the raw reality of life and the imperfections of man, and that gives me incredible hope. When I read the Psalms and I see the rawness of emotion, the anger, the frustration, the, the, the betrayal, the, the, the confusion, the joy, the, the elation, and all of these different things, I look at a God who gave us a scripture that was not afraid to give us life as it is and to teach us out of the abundance of what we can experience and what is possible. And so I look at this story, I think about how could it have happened so quickly. A man fails so spectacularly. So if you're there by now, I hope you are, Second Samuel chapter 11, we're going to read a couple of verses. This is what it says. This is from the NLT. It says this, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab 
and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and they laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And by the way, she was not wearing a bikini. Okay, she was taking a bath. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty. And he sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, Newsflash, I'm pregnant. And we'll park it there. How could such a man of God fall into such sin so quickly? Let's pray. Father, I invite your Holy Spirit to, Lord, just take these words and take this narrative and make it live within our hearts. Guard my mind, guard my words, and keep this cough at bay in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. How could such a man fail so quickly? He who penned psalms and meditated on God's word and delighted in it day and night. How could this man, not a youthful man any longer, uh, some commentaries say that he was in his 60th year. This is not a sin and an issue of a young buck who's just fired up, filled with hormones and can't contain himself. Not that that makes it right, by the way. No excuses, gentlemen. But how could this happen? An affair, an illicit pregnancy, and that's just the half of it because we parked in verse 5. We'll see more in a little bit. While it saddens me that David is in this state and this situation, like I said before, I'm grateful for this inclusion. For it shows me that what happened to David is in a newsflash. It's a sobering uh, uh, call, a, a clarion call on a bullhorn shouting out to Brian, to me. I'm not talking about you guys. You choose to listen if you want. It shouts out to me. It happened to David. This could happen to you. And I don't profess to be a perfect person. One of my professors at Bible school said, there is no perfection this side of eternity. And sin is sin, no matter whose bones it's on. It's going to be the same. It brings me such great clarity when I see this word and it scares the living daylights out of me. When I see that this man failed so quickly. So this morning, i like us to speak on this situation. And I want to tell you, talk to you from the title of When Conquerors Are Conquered. When conquerors are conquered. I want to consider the underlying fissures, the underlying issues, the underlying blemishes that were right there in David's life that obviously led to and created the atmosphere. It fostered the possibility for when that breach finally happened. Because it wasn't something that happened suddenly. It was something that happened gradually. If you're with me, say amen. And here's my prayer, my desire, my, my prayer for us today as we wrap up this sermon and go through this sermon is that we explore his story and gain an awareness and a conviction that will arise within our own hearts so that we may deal with sin before it's too late. That we will deal with sin before it has now affected everyone and everything in our midst. Amen? Amen. Amen. So while it seems sudden, here are some of the fissures that I notice. And, and there's others, but these, these are just some of the ones that jump out to me as I study the scriptures and study this man's life. Here is 
the things that were lying underneath the surface. And as our brother prayed and prophesied this morning, maybe what <clears throat> was underneath the mask of what he was you know, experiencing and putting out to the world. The first one that I bring to your attention is the fissure of victory. Verse 1, David sent Joab the Israelite arm to, uh, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. And they destroyed the Ammonite army. And it says they went on to lay siege of Rabbah. They, they were succeeding. By this point, David has encountered many victories. He's gone into many battlefields. It was said before when he had a predecessor, the king Saul, that, hey, Saul has slayed his thousand, but David has slayed his ten thousands. David has gained some victories. He's won some battles. This is a man who had amassed a contingency of mighty men around him one of which is Uriah that we'll read about in this passage. He has amassed an army, and so now he has generals. He has commanders and lieutenants, sergeants and captains. He has all of these men who are able-bodied and ready to go out to war and fight. There are times in, in his history where they will go to bat for him. They will go behind enemy lines just to grab him a sip of water from his own well back home when he's out on the run and being persecuted. David has amassed some victories. He's amassed some influence. He's amassed some, some support and, and, and some, some people around him. He's got people that can do things for him and military commanders that can go out and battle on his behalf and represent him well. And by this point, he has also solidified the Israelite nation and, and they have become the biggest that they've ever been. They've enjoyed peace that they hadn't enjoyed in certain areas. They've unified and gained more taxes and, and, and vessels where, where they are now the, the, the leaders of. And people come to pay homage to them. David is experiencing quite a number of victories. Not only that. If you look throughout the history, the historical books of the Bible and the prophets, and, and you go through and you, you hear the, the account of kings in, in the Kings and the Chronicles, oftentimes David is the benchmark which everybody goes back and talks about. This king did right in the sight of the Lord, much like his father David. This king succeeded in honoring the Lord and wiping the nation of idolatry, much like their father David. At this point, the, city, the nation of Israel is experiencing a spiritual high, an economic high, a sovereignty high, a, a, a military power high. They are experiencing victory. But isn't it funny how victory sometimes makes us susceptible? Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 26 says, when you have had children and children's children, and become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, you will soon utterly perish from the land. You, people of God, who's receiving the law, you've longed to go into the promised land. You have longed to have your inheritance. You are living out in the wilderness. The law has come. The promise is given. When you finally settle into the land and things are cushy and things are good and you're experiencing that victory where you have your own fig tree and you have your own plot of land and now you are, you're, you're growing and your descendants are multiplying and you're having your children and complacency sets in. Watch out. Isn't it interesting that victory often makes us vulnerable? It's a fissure. Once things become familiar, once things become mundane, once we lose the fight, once we lose the edge, once we're no longer busy occupying with the, with the process of advancing and the process of accomplishing, the process of conquering, and we have conquered it all, we have it all, we amassed it all, and things become easy, it is easy for us to also become susceptible to sin. We start letting down our guards. We start trusting in ourselves and we forget to lay our hopes, lay our trust, lay our desires upon the Lord and wait upon him because we're waiting upon ourselves. And when we do that, watch out church, we're in trouble. When we do that and everything's working out, 
Watch out, because that's exactly when Satan steps in. He wants to hit you when your guard has been lowered. He wants to come, and he wants to take you out. Much like those racers. Have you ever seen those racers or those bikers? That they're on the home stretch. They can see the finish line. It's right there before them. And they start getting excited, and they're waving to the crowds, and they're all fired up. And as they're celebrating, all of a sudden they're overtaken by their opponent. Why? Because they got comfortable. They were in sight of their victory, and they dropped their guards. Satan loves those moments, and he's waiting. He's waiting. Not only this, I see another fissure in his life. There's this fissure called unchecked sins. An unchecked sin is a fissure in the life of David. While it is observed that David often sought God, often submitted to God, often asked God for his will, his way, and and Lord, direct my path, and all these beautiful things, and and he was all about God. See, there's one thing that David did not quite let leave into and deposit into the hands of God. If we start looking at his history, you're going to notice how David never committed to God this one unchecked sin of sexual lust. Stop and think about this for a second. The Bible tells us in Genesis that a man shall leave his mother and father and he will cleave unto his wife and they shall become one flesh. It was God's ordained desire and his plan since the beginning in the garden that marriage would be between one man and one woman. How many wives does David have? Anybody know? Trivia. It's more than six. Oh, not only that, do you know how many concubines he had? Not, not, not as many as his son Solomon down the road. But it is believed that he had at least 10 concubines. At least. And that I'm looking right here within this time zone and this frame of reference. He could have had more as time progressed. But stop and think about this. In the culture, right, that is the day. Yes, polygamy was the norm. Yes, polygamy was practiced, but it was practiced by other nations outside of a covenant with the living God. And when God ordained marriage, he ordained it between one man. It was never his desire. It was never his intention for God's people to have more than one spouse. And man, I, you know what? Just, just as an aside, Making sure that you do everything right and you honor your one spouse and you die to yourself every single day, that's hard enough with one. Imagine doing that with many. Jesus, have mercy, Lord. But David had Michael, Abigail, Haggith, Egla, and just to name a few, he had several wives and several concubines. And you know what? David was also a king, was he not? And hey, if we go back to Deuteronomy, the retelling, the recounting of the law, when it was given one more time, hey, there's this verse in chapter 17 that says this, furthermore, he must not marry many wives lest his affections turn aside. And who is the object of that commandment? Kings. God had expressly forbidden kings to have more than one wife. For his nation, for his plan, for his desired future, God said, one man, one woman, done. And yet David ignored those commands and he lived according to the customs of his neighbors. He says, hey, oh, I'm going to marry for political reasons. I'm going to marry for pleasurable reasons. I'm going to marry for whatever reason I want to marry for, for I am the king. And I have this ability for some reason to fly under the radar or go against, even though there's a scripture that talks specifically about me. David let his lust run rampant and unchecked. And instead, he kept adding ladies and ladies to his harem. He kept feeding his sexual passion. And spoiler alert, passion in this department, sexual passion is like a raging fire. It's like a raging fire. It's not like, hey, um, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat something, and now I'm satisfied and I'm full. No, I'm going to satisfy this itch, and now I want more. David did not check this issue in his life. He didn't pursue Bathsheba because he was compelled by an empty bed. He pursued Bathsheba because he was compelled by an uncontrolled heart. 
the fissure of an unchecked sin. But what else? He was victorious. There was sin run, running rampant within him underneath the surface, but also another, another fissure in his life was missing accountability. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11, 2 Samuel. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, oh, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. It just blows my mind. It's incredible to me in one way, and it's not incredible to me in another. It's incredible in the, in the sense that not one person threw up a flag. You know, you watch baseball, uh, football, and sometimes you see the flags going out in the field, and, you know, they stop the play. They stop the game. We, we got to review the tape. We got to deal with something that is not right here. Not one flag goes up when David says, who is this woman, and go get her for me. There is not a person that, that shows up. No one challenges David's command. No one stops him in his tracks. There is not a servant who, who, who says, when they bring back Bathsheba, hey, king, I don't think you should do it. I don't think you should come in the house. King, king what are you doing? He, oh, hey, uh, can, we, can, we, can we pause this here for a second? Not one person. And I get it. He's the king, and, and who wants to challenge the king? So I get it on that sense, but still, she is. The wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam, who, by the way, is one of your counselors. The ESV puts it like this. When the servant responds to the question, he's like, is, it, is, it, is she not Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah and the daughter of Eliam? Almost as if the rhetorical question was almost a little bit of a challenge, but then nothing happens. Church, it's sad when... We don't have somebody our equal who can call us out on our issues. It's sad when we have made our lives so insulated that we don't allow other people to speak into it. And here, this king, you know, all throughout the history, it could have been even from his earlier days, there is nobody that is said to be able to speak into his life and to call him out on his stuff. Yes, there's going to be people who are going to call him out eventually. Nathan's going to come and put him in check in just a little bit. But up to this point, not a single person checked him and asked him, hey, we need to be accountable here. You should not be doing this. If David had just had somebody, somebody of equal authority, somebody, you know, who's across the aisle, who, who's going through similar things, maybe another king friend that could have, you know, checked him, somebody. I wonder if, you know what, things would have been drastically different. The history of this Bible would have been drastically different. Can you see how all of these little fissures laid the foundation and when we finally find this man who wrote beautiful psalms and conquered giants and did all these incredible things for the Lord, whom God himself declared, he's a man after my own heart. When we look at all of him and we scratch our heads thinking, how could he have fallen so quickly? Can you see? Can you see what was running rampant underneath the service? What was contributing? And much like no one gets fat overnight, right? Like sometimes we have this idea that, you know what? No, no, we don't. We, we don't have this idea actually because we just go ahead and do what we want. Nobody gets fat overnight. You don't just eat, you know what, those amazing cushions and, you know, and then all of a sudden you're, you're fat. You don't just have that milkshake and all of a sudden you plump up the next day. No, but it's one milkshake after another, one cushion after another, one treat, one cupcake, one whatever it is, fill in the blank, after another. And lo and behold, when you finally realize it, the pants don't fit, the buttons are bursting out. And you know what? The doctor's telling you something's got to change because something terrible is going to happen. It doesn't happen overnight and it didn't happen suddenly for David. And so... Those were the fissures. Those were the things that happened. But then this day came. 
in the springtime when he's supposed to be out at war. He's supposed to be with his troops and, and taking care of business and laying siege to the, to the city of Rabbah and there with his troops giving orders and pursuing you know, that which was his calling. Why? Because the kings of the ancient Near East would often be the one leading the charge of their armies and conquering. We see it time and time again in the history of the conquests that kings were there and kings were captured. Why? Because that's what they did when David was not doing what he needed to do. Finally, one day it came when Satan said, my trap is ready. It's primed and it's today. So let's just take a look at just a few things at how his dam finally burst. On that day, when all the fissures were already creating a network, preparing for the bursting to happen. Here's what went down. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. The first thing that happened here is that David saw this woman of incredible beauty. Church, I posit to you that if you make eye contact with sin, it's much like staring at the sun. It's not advised. If you make eye contact with sin, it's much like staring at the sun. It is not recommended. Don't do it. Why? Because there are issues. There are ramifications. David's house was probably located on the highest ground in the old city, the Jebusite forest and from, uh, fortress. And from his rooftop, he would be able to see the surrounding uh, uh, houses. And he would be able to see you know, in the immediate houses around his palace inside of the courtyards. And you know what? It's often said that Bathsheba was there bathing on the roof, as some of the scriptures say. But you know what? It it was not really common for you to bathe on the roof. What it most likely means is that she was bathing within the courtyard of the house because most houses had a courtyard within it. And she was there, but yet her courtyard happened to be within view of the place where David used to walk. And it happened to be that, that day, that day when she's there for a specific purpose. It tells us that she was cleansing herself and making herself ritually pure because she had had her menstrual cycle. She's there doing what the law required for her to do within the confines of her house. There is nothing within the scriptures that tell me, so if you're tempted, as I've started contemplating some questions, because I've heard this expression many times, it takes two people to tango, doesn't it? But there are situations that happen where two people did not make a decision. And in this situation, she's there doing what is exactly within her right to do. And the king happened to see her. She's bathing. She's beautiful. He sees her. And James tells us that God does not tempt man, but every man is carried away by his own sinful desires. David saw, and at that moment, he decided to make eye contact. I wonder what would have happened if David, in that moment, would have just submitted to God. Lord, I saw something I should not have seen. Lord, I'm thinking things I should not be thinking. God, please help me take this away from me. And then, wow, what if he had done this? Let me step away from the balcony. What if he had done that? But you know what? He decided that he was going to stare sin in the eyes and it was not the most advisable thing for him to do. Staring at the sun, even for a moment, causes eye damage, causes issues. If you linger with lust, it's going to cause problems. If you linger with sin, it's going to cause you issues. If you linger with addictions and whatever brokenness that the enemy will dangle before you that makes it look appealing, newsflash, it's going to cause some damage. And so David watches. And instead of fleeing from immorality, instead of fleeing from youthful lusts like the Bible tells us, David decides to stay. His first step in his moral failure was that he saw and he liked what he saw and he kept on seeing. Second thing that comes to my attention as the dam is about to burst is that there is no just doing some research. I'm just doing some research with sin. I'm just getting the 411. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm not going to move on it. I'm not going to act on it. See, look in verse 3. He sent someone to find out who she was. I'm just doing the research. Man, she is gorgeous. I'm just doing the research 
Having held sin's gaze, he then begins researching this woman. Tell me more, please. Who is she? What is she? Where is she from? Who's her family? What's going on? He wants to know more. And I wonder, maybe he was just trying to ask the question to find out, is this woman unmarried? Maybe that's where his his research was hoping it would lead into. He had a hypothesis, and he wanted to satisfy that hypothesis. Maybe this woman is, you know what, unmarried. And if she's unmarried, I already have 10 in in my harem. Let me add another concubine because I'm unchecked in this area of my lust. And so what happens is he asks the servant to go. The servant goes, finds out, and you know what? It doesn't help his situation. After he is carried by his own sinful lusts, his own sinful desires, your desires conceive sin. James says, the process goes, sinful desires, evil desires, it conceives sin. And then it's going to birth a few things. But in this moment, David is starting to fail because he's looked and now he's conceived He's made out a plan in his mind of what he's going to do and what he wants to accomplish and what it's going to be like. And he's pursuing something that's going to bring him pleasure, that is illicit and not for him. How many of us, after being tempted, would have walked away unscathed, but we continued to dig a little deeper? See, how many times, you know, do we, and you can posit so many situations, you might be watching a movie and you see a beautiful actor, you see a beautiful actress, all right, ladies or guys, what, you know, you interchange it, right? You see this incredible stud and then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, who's that? Let me see the IMDB records of who this person is. What other movies are they in? Oh, I'm just doing some research. I just want to know, you know, how accomplished are they? What other movies are they in? I like this actor. I like how they perform. But hey, maybe in the back of the mind, maybe you're doing some research because you're wanting to find out, are they in any? R-rated movies? Is there any moment where this incredible stud is going to take off his shirt and I'm going to start fantasizing about him? It, it, can, can, I, can I figure out, you know, if she has a, a rated R movie and a mature movie where maybe she has a nude scene and I can just, you know, let my mind conceive Or what about this? We just go ahead and say, Lord, I'm just doing the research on this car, on this hobby, on this thing that, God, I know it's not for me right now. It's not the season. I don't have the money. I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the the, the ability. It's out of my season. It's out of your plans for me. But I'm just doing the research. I'm not going to do any. I'm not going to make a decision without you, God. I'm I'm just getting the facts. And yet the Holy Spirit's already brought you conviction saying, this is not for you. Walk away from it. I wonder. Just doing some research does not work with sin. It just doesn't work. There's some things that we do not need to know more information about. Amen? There's some things that we just don't need more info pursuing. There's no, no, no amount of information that you're going to gain uh, when you find out, should I have an affair in, on my spouse? Should I commit adultery? There, there's no amount of information that will say, yes, you should go ahead and do that. There is no, no amount of information you're going to find out that's going to go contrary to this book and what the precepts of God are. There's some things you just don't need to find out more information about. You need to walk away. You don't need to do research. I think I belabor the point. Not only did he look at the sun, which was not advised, he did some research, but then it says, That in verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I am pregnant. Church, when you bring sin home, it's going to rearrange the furniture. When you bring sin home, it's going to rearrange your furniture. David allowed his evil desires to carry him away as he looked at that woman. He allowed that desire to then conceive sin within his heart as he pictured all that he would do with her in his bed. And now he has taken action and given birth to the sin. He says, I'm taking this out of my mind and I'm going to manifest this on my body. I'm going to take this out of my mind where it's just in my heart and it's just me. It's me, myself, and I committing this thing and thinking this thing and enjoying this thing. And now I'm going to bring another person into the story in the mix. I'm going to conceive the sin and give birth to the sin. The problem with that is David's looking for a good time 
He wants to just have a moment of pleasure. And after that, he goes ahead. There, there is no record of Bathsheba restraining or uh, uh, crying, screaming out, resisting. There, there's none of that. And you know what? The omission of this, please don't get me wrong. It just tells me, okay? It just tells some of the commentators, if you read and, and start contemplating, just because it's not there doesn't mean she didn't do it. So let's not go ahead and put her in a box saying that she was looking to do something wrong. Maybe she was, but maybe she wasn't. And the point that there is no communication about her motives tells me that this is not really something that we're supposed to be focusing on her, but something that we need to be looking at, the man of God, the king of Israel. This is about David. He brought the sin home. She didn't bring it home. Sin moved from the thought to the deed, from one person to two, and now David is deeper into the issue. He's deeper into the sin. And after Bathsheba returned to her house, and as far as David was concerned, the, the affair was over, the one-night stand was great, and he was all happy, and things were good, he could go about his day. Well, a little bit later, just a month or two, or I don't know how much time happened after that, the news comes back, hey, buddy, I'm pregnant. And you know what? Sin has moved into my house. It's going to rearrange some things. Hey, you're going to have to rearrange your reputation right now because, hey, you're not this righteous king that everyone believes you are. Hey, let's move some of the, the, the furniture around because now you're going to have to make some room for something that was never intended to be part of your life. It's going to be part of your life right now. And hey, it's no fault of that thing or that child. It's no result of what the sin has produced, but the fault is your own. You invited it in, and now it's changing the dynamics of your life, of your reputation, of your future, of your opportunities, of your credentials, of your spiritual life. Oh, it's not hurting anybody. Anybody hear this one? It, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, no one's there to hear it. Does it make a sound? That's the question, right? Um, if it's not hurting anybody, it's just between me and God. Yeah, uh, let me tell you this. You're watching that pornography on your, t on, your, on your telephone or on the computer or whatever. It might not be hurting as you think, but it is hurting because it's promoting an industry that makes sex trafficking a possibility and a reality. It is hurting because it's affecting your relationship with your spouse. It is hurting because it's desensitizing you to the pursuit and the effort that you need to make because love and romance and intimacy is something that needs to be worked on. It's not an automatic thing as Hollywood portrays it. A beautiful thing like it, it is beautiful, it is great, but it's something that God intended to be developed, to be nurtured. Some of us, man, I did not sign up for this today. What's going on? I thought we were going to get a nice little message, and I'm talking about some heavy subjects, some intimate things. But is it okay that God speaks to the totality of our lives? And he wants us to be equipped to succeed, not just in the areas that we want to, but the areas that we need to. And this is critical, especially in this day and age when everybody, you know, you look out and there's the bachelorette and, and, and the, the whole promotion and the bachelor and all, all that they're talking about. There's, you go on Netflix, it's too hot to handle or, you know, uh, love is blind and this and that. And the whole premise is you go live with somebody, you go test drive the situation, you go do all of this and you know what, you're going to figure everything out. It's totally against the precepts of God and what God intended to be a blessing and something that's going to bring you joy and hope and intimacy and, and the world has twisted it and so why shouldn't the bible speak into the reality of what god intended for us in terms of our sexual ethics and all of those things let me just tell you one more embracing sin is equivalent to embracing death to giving death a big bear hug it's the same thing as you just going up to death and saying come here oh buddy let me give you a nice squeeze if you keep on reading the chapter, verse 14, 15. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he gave it to Uriah to deliver. Uriah, take this letter to your commanding officer. Don't look inside the letter. It's sealed with my seal, my insignia. Only Joab is going to read it. No problem. And the letter instructed Joab to station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. And then in the moment where the battle is the fiercest, I want you to pull back all of the troops and you leave him exposed so that he may be killed. See, because the issue was the baby's on the way. My reputation, the furniture in my house and my kingdom, my reputation, all of that's about to be shifted. The reputation of this woman is about to be tarnished. 
Everybody's going to be talking about us, and there are consequences built into the word of God. It is said that a woman who commits adultery should be stoned, that the person who committed adultery, the man as well, should have been stoned. And so are they going to come and stone them? I doubt that. The commander-in-chief, almost like Richard Nixon when the, former, when the next president came through and he pardoned him, you're not going to be the first president that goes to jail after the events and the scandal of Watergate. But here's the deal. there's still going to be some ramifications and I'm not oblivious to that, so I got to do something about it. And so, hey, let's call Uriah back from the field. Let's get Uriah to go home. Let's get Uriah in the midst of the battle while he's supposed to be besieging the city and winning the battle on the front lines as one of my mighty men. Let me bring him home so that he can hang out with his wife, have a great old night. And then all these months later, when the baby finally arrives, nobody will question it is his son or his daughter. But Uriah was more integrous, more a man of character than David was in this season of his life. And Uriah refused to go into his house. And when he refused, he spent the night in the guard's tower. The next day, David calls him back. Did you go home? No, I couldn't. How can I? When all my men are fighting, all my men are suffering, all my men are intense. Joab, my commander, is there. And everybody is fighting and committed to this, to this holy war. Why? Because to go out and fight for God was considered to be a divine thing. Oftentimes, the Ark of the Covenant would go before them as they're fighting. And they would take what was considered the presence of God to go before them. So how can I go and enjoy the, the pleasant trees of life, go back and enjoy my wife, and, and when everybody else that I love, that I cherish, that I'm supposed to be locked arms with, fighting side by side, is there laying down their lives and sacrificing, why should I go back home and enjoy the comforts of home? I'm not doing it, David. All right, let's put on a party. Let's get you drunk. And David goes on. See, church, what happens is this. Sin is going to rearrange the furniture of your life. I imagine David, is he a guy that, that was once willing to try to inebriate somebody and make somebody get drunk to go commit a crime or to go, go cover something up? See, sin gets us to do things that we're not comfortable in doing. It takes us beyond the threshold of what we thought we would ever do. It takes us beyond where we want to go. And then when the bills come due and the debt is owed, it is no longer there to pay the piper, but it leaves us be all by ourselves. Anyways, David's plan doesn't work. Uriah does not comply. He does, even under the influence of alcohol, he still has more integrity than David. He doesn't go home. He doesn't sleep with his wife. And now what am I to do? I guarantee you that when David saw that woman on the balcony of his palace, he was not at that very moment looking at her and planning a funeral. There was no funeral in sight. He was not planning how he would break the news. He was not planning to have people die. And here's the issue, church. If we are going to embrace sin, we're going to embrace death, what happens? God con comes and he brings conviction and condemnation upon his actions. And what's going to happen down this road, not only is, is there going to be the death of this child because it was a punishment from the Lord. This was an illicit pregnancy and God punished David. The child died. Bathsheba is suffering because of it. She was also the mother. She has to grieve the loss of her child. But not only that, there are mothers and there are daughters, there are sons, there are parents who are grieving. Why? Because when Joab pulled back the army because of David's command to cover up his sin, to get Uriah out of the picture, he was not the only person who died in that battle, but several other men died. And church, isn't it incredible how sin is indiscriminate? And sin never cares to just take out the one, but it wants to take out all. The enemy wants to take out as many as he can. I saw this uh, illustration, and I thought it was interesting. Sin, you know, it's like the, I, I, actually, I told you next week, so the, the pool scenario, where you, you don't want to go in the pool, and there's a couple of guys who are coming in, they're, they're intent on throwing you into that pool, and they're going to get you in there. That's exactly Satan. He wants to, at that moment where you're being pushed in, he wants to grab everybody and take them with him. That's what the enemy wants to do. And so, I'm going to invite the team to come and minister. And this is all great. Wow, sin, incredible. David, cracks, fissures, issues. The dam is bursting. He's committing sin. But I'm going to leave you with this. 
You can read the story. You can find out all of the ramifications where death came in and reigned because of this. In David's life, his life will never, the, the furniture has been so rearranged in his future that there's going to be a sword perpetually in his home. He's going to have one of his own sons rape one of his other daughters. There's going to be his own son who's going to come and, and revolt against him and usurp his throne. He's going to have, you know, that very same son who's going to take his harem and all his concubines and he's going to sleep with them. What David did with Bathsheba, one man's wife, uh, his own son is going to come and do with all of his harem and all of his concubines and all of his wives. And he's going to do it inside of all of the nation. Talk about the tragedy, the death, the brokenness, the despair that came in. And you know what? God absolutely later called David a man after his own heart. Why? Because of this last thing I want to tell you. Is that if we look at his story, you have to understand that God is a God of grace and a God of second chances. When David had Uriah killed and the news came back home, it is said that Bathsheba went and she mourned the death of her husband. And after the period of days was completed where she mourned the death of her husband, David did the righteous thing, or was it a cop-out thing, to again cover and gain and garner some good graces and save some face. He went and he married Bathsheba because now she is a woman who's a widow. And as the Lord had brought condemnation and conviction to David. The Bible tells us, if you read Psalms 51, you hear the incredible confession of, of this king in this moment when he's confronted with the reality of his sin. He says these incredible words, Lord, I have sinned against you. And he asks for God's forgiveness. And as he asks for God's forgiveness, he lays down and prostrates himself all night, fasting and praying for that child to be spared. And when that child dies, he gets up to go comfort his wife. And God brings a second chance in that marriage. Another child is conceived. And that child that's going to be born goes by the name of Solomon. He becomes the child that's going to build the temple. He becomes the child whom which the lineage of David is somewhat redeemed, at least for a period. God is a God of second chances. Although he failed spectacularly, in the end he succeeded amazingly because he was willing to take a look at his sins square in the face. When it finally dawned on him that, hey, this is not right. I've been leaning on my own victories. I've been letting some things run rampant in my life. I have no accountability. Thank you, Nathan, for calling me out. When he finally realized these things, he said, I got to stop looking at the sun. I can't bring it back home. I got I to gotta lay down the research and I got to stop hugging death wherever it comes. I need to step into God and ask him for his mercy and his grace. I'd rather fall on the hands of God than on the hands of man and the hands of all these other things. He asked God for his forgiveness. I invite you to stand with me today. I know the Lord put this on my heart because there's somebody here who needed to hear this this morning. And I know part of that conversation is that, that somebody is me as well because I know I am a sinner saved by God's grace. And if it happened to David, it can happen to me. And God, please have mercy that I will, Lord Jesus, run the race that is worthy, that I will set my eyes before you. I, I pray that for me. I pray that for you. And so today, I just invite you are you a person who needs a second chance from God? I don't know what you've sinned, where you've been researching, what you've been laying and compromising, what you haven't subjected to God's vision. Let me just tell you, there's nothing he doesn't see. It's not hurting anybody. Yes, it is. It's hurting your relationship with him. It's hurting your, your testimony. It's hurting your impact. It's hurting your future. See, David was, yes, called a man after God's own heart. 
But his influence from this point, his impact from this point was retirement and getting ready for the next generation. It was no longer exploits of his own. Sin changes things. Don't let it change things and rob you of what God has for you. If you would just indulge me and close your eyes for a minute. As every eye is closed, every head, please bow. Make this an intimate moment, a private moment. You don't need to tell me that you're going through any sin. I'm not even going to ask you to come up to this altar because the goal is not embarrassment. It's not to put anyone on the spot. And when I look out to somebody else, the Bible tells me, do not see the the, the sawdust, the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and miss the plank in your own. Make this a private moment and ask the Lord, God, what is it that you want to put a finger on in my life today that needs to change? What is it, God, that you're calling me out of? What is it, Lord, that you want me to build protections and guardrails around my heart for? I invite you. And if you feel like you've went too far, Today's the day you need to cry out to God. Say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Have mercy on me. And as the team just plays softly and ministers softly, make an altar of wherever you are. If you feel brave, if you could care less, you're welcome to come to this altar. But just press into the Lord invite them into your situation let me just tell you there is no sin that is too great for our God there is no heart that wants change that cares to walk in his presence that he will not honor and meet halfway so press into him today we're not celebrating communion this morning but we will next week and whenever sin runs rampant in our lives and an issue holds us back, we should never keep ourselves from God, but we should run full tilt towards Him and ask Him to redeem us, wash us, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As you have your moment with the Lord, let me pray for you. Father, I just invite your Holy Spirit to minister your truth. To break, Lord God, that which is underneath that is broken. To, Lord God, uproot it, Lord Jesus, and, and seal up the gaps, seal up the brokenness, seal up the fissures and the cracks. And, Father, I pray that you would bring insulation, Father, to every woman, man, and child. That your ordained plan, that your promises, that what you have, Lord God, reserved your empowerment, your enablement, your guidelines that are for every one of their good. I pray, Jesus, that you would allow that to come to pass. Allow those truths, those realities, those desires, those plans to succeed. In your precious and mighty name.